Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Babies in Common Show. I'm Jeanette. And I'm Melissa. Welcome, listeners. Please note that any information shared during the show is not to be taken as medical advice. Please consult your own care providers for questions about you or your baby's health and visit babiesincommon.com slash disclaimer to read more. All righty. Now on to our show. And for our repeat listeners, did you notice that there wasn't a big intro on the podcast? Ooh. I decided by now, you know who we are and what we do. So, <laughs> so anyway, all right. So today is Wednesday, March 31st, and we're talking today about navigating pregnancy and a little bit about birth and breastfeeding with type one diabetes. Yes. And our guest today is our friend, Danielle Blanchard. Danielle and I met in the summer of 2014, a few months after her first son, Eli, was born. We both attended and get together hosted by the Central Mass Baby Wearers, which has a, a Facebook group if you're interested. And which you're was in the Central started Mass all by area. Babies in Common Moms. It was started Ooh, all by Babies in Common Moms. Yep. And this is a group where parents socialize and bring their baby carriers for others to try out before they buy. And boy, how I miss getting together mm. in person <laughs> with people because with the pandemic, you know, it's mostly kind of an online, uh, what's your advice about this carrier? What do you recommend for my body type kind of Facebook group? But hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll be able to get together again. So anyway, long story short, I offered my carrier to Danielle, we got to chatting, and we both realized we are basically neighbors and the rest <laughs> is history. Um, I know that Danielle also got a chance to work with Jeanette for her second baby as far as lactation support. And we'll learn a little bit more about that later on in the show. One thing I learned about Danielle pretty right away, because she's a very open person, is that she has type 1 diabetes. And she was diagnosed with that at the age of 16 months. Wow. And as a nurse, knowing how hard it is to manage a child's blood sugar in general for a thousand reasons, I can't even imagine what her parents went through trying to manage the blood sugar of a preverbal, picky eating, rapidly developing toddler in the 1980s. It truly blows my mind because what we knew about diabetes back then and how how we managed it and what kind of technological tools we had to do so are vastly different than the world now in 2021. So Danielle has been living with diabetes now for over 30 years. Isn't that right, Danielle? Yes. Mm -hmm. Since I was 16 months away. old and I'm almost 40. <laughs> I was going to say without giving away your age, but you yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> we get better so that's a, age. that's a long time with diabetes. Yes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Lots of wisdom. So prior to becoming a mom, Danielle graduated from LaSalle College with a degree in psychology and worked for many years as a camp director for the Clara Barton Camp for Girls with Diabetes and as program director for the American Diabetes Association. While Danielle's been staying at home for the last seven years since the birth of her son, she has also co-founded the Massachusetts Type 1 Diabetes Meetup, a support group for adults with type 1 diabetes on Facebook. And she's also been very passionate about diabetes education, research, and support. And she's with us today to share her trials, tribulations, lessons learned, and her two pregnancies, um, with diabetes, but also her experience with an unexpected cesarean birth and a NICU stay for her son as well. Mm -hmm. She's currently in central Massachusetts with her husband and two sons, Elias born in 2014 and Leo that was born, who was born in 2017. Thank you so much for joining us, Danielle. Oh, I'm really excited. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start with a little background on diabetes and pregnancy, shall we? You know how much I love that. From Nurse <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> From Nurse Melissa. <laughs> so many people are familiar with gestational diabetes, often referred to as GDM, which is diabetes that is diagnosed for the first time during pregnancy, most often during the third trimester. 
nearly 10% of pregnancies in the United States are affected by GDM every year. So about one in 10 uh, expectant parents. One way that GDM develops is that hormones secreted by the placenta can block the action of a pregnant person's insulin to their body. This insulin resistance, as it's called, makes it hard for the person's body to use insulin. GDM can also start when the person's body is not able to make and use all the insulin it needs for pregnancy. See, after you eat a meal, this is the way I usually describe it when I do diabetes <laughs> counseling for, for patients. After you eat a meal, your body digests your food and absorbs the sugar from your food into your bloodstream. And imagine that insulin is like a little car that drives around its pickup truck and picks up the sugar and drives it into your cells so that your cells can use that sugar for energy, for metabolism. Um, if your body can't utilize the insulin to, that it makes or can't make enough insulin to drive that sugar into your cells, then you get high blood sugar. And the medical term for that is hyperglycemia, hyper meaning high, glycemia meaning sugar. Uh, most pregnant people can manage their GDM with dietary changes and exercise, and a small amount of people will need injectable or oral medications to keep their blood sugar in a healthy range. Because diabetes is a common pregnancy complication, many people kind of poo-poo the seriousness of it, but untreated hyperglycemia in pregnancy can increase the risk of some pretty serious things like birth defects, preeclampsia, birth injury to the parent or baby, cesarean birth, preterm birth, and unstable blood sugars after birth requiring NICU care for the baby. For most people, GDM resolves by six weeks postpartum. However, it does increase one's chance of developing insulin resistance in the future. And so your primary care provider should be aware if you had gestational diabetes when you were pregnant so that they can monitor you for signs of diabetes in the future. So what's different in Danielle's situation is she has type 1 diabetes, which means her body actually can't make any insulin at all. And this is a much more complicated diagnosis than gestational diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease in which insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas are mistakenly destroyed by the body's immune system. Type 1 diabetes seems to have a genetic component that can be diagnosed early or later in life, and its causes aren't even fully known at this point, and there's currently no cure. People with type 1 diabetes are dependent on injected or pumped insulin to survive. Because of the many changes your, body's go your body is going through when you're pregnant, including metabolic changes, people with pre-existing diabetes need to, close need to be closely monitored by an endocrinologist alongside with their maternity care provider to make sure they have the tools and medication they need to keep their blood sugars in a healthy range throughout their pregnancy. So let's start. You were diagnosed really early, Danielle. So yes. how did your parents figure that out when you were such a tiny little non nonverbal? Well, you might have had some little sentences, but right. yeah. uh, you were 16 months old, right? Yeah, I was only 16 months. And my uncle also has type 1 diabetes. Um, I was, you know, the signs of diabetes are like using the bathroom a lot, drinking a lot of water. So they were noticing that those things also some signs they don't talk about is like my urine was sticky and, um, my breath didn't smell so great. And also, um, there, there can be like a sweet smell to the urine. Um, and so, you know, they were noticing some of these things, oh, and weight loss. They were noticing some of these things, but they weren't putting it together with diabetes. They said, our daughter's not doing well. She's sick, she's lethargic. And they brought me to the hospital. It was actually in February. And they brought me, it was the day before Valentine's day. They had already brought me three times. And the so to a just, doctor, to a doctor's appointment or actually just to the ER, to the hospital? To, 
to the ER or making appointments like three times. It was the third time that I went that I was actually diagnosed. And the first couple of times they just said, um, oh yeah, she's probably got like the flu or she's probably got some sort of um, bug. Just give her lots of like tonic water, ginger ale, you know, like things with sugar in them. So I was not <laughs> getting better. I was getting worse. Yes. <laughs> and so by the third um, appointment, they, I don't know if it was the doctors who decided or my parents suggested that we should check my blood sugar. And my blood sugar was actually 800 at diagnosis. Wow. Yeah. So that's really high, a number that you won't see on somebody who's already been diagnosed, but it's a number that you could see on somebody who's had diabetes for a while and it hasn't been diagnosed yet. So that is, it's not safe for a child to have a blood sugar like that. So um, yeah, that's how they found out <laughs> that I had diabetes. And, you know, back then they had just come out with, um, with home blood sugar testing things prior oh. to home blood sugar testing, which was like right at the beginning of my diagnosis, you had to wipe off a strip and you could look at a color and you'd have to match up the color to see if you were between 80 and 160 or like 160 and 240. And so you weren't getting as precise a number as we're getting now. So you're, you're, you would have to drop blood or you would have to oh, yeah. pee on a stick. We would have to dry blood, but prior to my diagnosis, other right. people had to pee on a stick. Yes. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the 1980s, you're a kid, they just come out with home testing. Yeah. And so, you know, knowing how, again, type one diabetes, you're not making enough insulin for the food that you're eating. You're not making any. Um, yeah. Right. Exactly. You're not mm -hmm. making any, uh, and you were lethargic and losing weight yes. because your body could not utilize the food for energy to, you know, um, mm. how does one know how much insulin to give essentially a baby who's kind of erratic with eating and right. er erratic with activity, you know, how, what was it like as a kid in the 1980s having to manage your diabetes? Well, I don't remember when I was 16 months old, but I do remember <laughs> when I got older and I hated shots, like as most kids would, but I had to take shots. So, um, I took them just at breakfast and dinner. Um, and it had like all these different peaks and so I would take one at breakfast that would also peak at breakfast and lunch. And I would take one at dinner that would peak at dinner and then keep me with insulin all night long. And so as I grew up with diabetes, you know, when I was in my teens and stuff, they were coming out with new ways to manage your diabetes, more faster acting insulins where people would take their insulin every time they eat instead of um, dealing with the peaks and the valleys that you have to deal with if you're just taking the older types of insulin. Well, I didn't want that because <laughs> I didn't want to take a shot like at breakfast, snack, lunch, dinner. So I stayed on just the two shots a day for like as long as I could until I was 21 years old. Wow. And I had to switch over to multiple injections so that I could go on the insulin pump because I was like, okay, I will do that for the benefit. Of <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I know that, you know, even just when I was in nursing school, which mm -hmm. is, was a long time ago, <laughs> I don't 20, believe it. No, 20, 20 years ago now, <laughs> yeah. almost 20 years ago. Um, you know, which actually just makes me want to faint saying that, but anyway, so mm -hmm. when I was in nursing school, um, and I was, you know, caring for people with diabetes in the hospital, um, 
it was a lot of, uh, you know, um, don't eat sugar at all. And, um, you know, giving this pre-meal insulin. So, you know, uh, you give somebody their insulin and then their, their dinner tray would be delayed and you've already given them their insulin and you don't know how much they're going to eat. And sometimes they were vomiting because they're sick and they're in the hospital. So it's crazy. You're like, you're giving insulin before someone even eats anything at all. And then you're chasing their blood sugars afterwards. And it was really, it was really hard, um, to have multiple patients with diabetes that were sick, which also affects the way your body metabolism and uses, you know, insulin. Wow. So I do not miss my med surge days, but now it's a lot about like carb counting and insulin pumps. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? So like you said, chasing, and that is very similar. Like I felt like before I was chasing my blood sugars and I had to like catch up to them and they were low. And so I had to react, but now it's carb counting. And I decide ahead of time what I want to eat. I give the insulin for what I want to eat and my body reacts to what I did, you know? Um, And so I do still have some highs and lows. However, they're much more manageable. Um, so are you allowed to eat cake at this point? I can eat cake. As I, long as you plan I, ahead. I have celiac disease, so I have <laughs> gluten-free cake. But, you can have icing. But, you can have icing. Yes, I can have icing. I can eat ice cream. I can eat the things. I just have to plan ahead. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a big misunderstanding, especially when new kids are diagnosed, their yeah. family members are like, oh, well, he, you know, Timmy can't have a birthday cake and Timmy can't have ice cream and Timmy can't, it's like, Timmy can have whatever Timmy wants, as long as yeah. we can count the carbs in that cotton candy and cover his hmm. carbs with the amount of insulin his body's going to need to metabolize that. So it's, you know, a, a totally different mindset right. than the sugar-free jello, sugar-free juice. People with yeah. diabetes need sugar. They need carbs because carbs are the only um, part of our food that our brain can use for energy. Uh, and so, you know, this is a big thing with people that have diabetes in pregnancy, especially if they're newly diagnosed with something like gestational diabetes, they think, oh, the best way for me to keep my blood sugar in good control is to not eat anything, to cut my calories. And we don't want you to cut your calories when you're pregnant. You need enough calories for your body to be healthy and for your baby to grow. And yes, there are going to be some types of foods that might uh, make your blood sugar more reactive than others. So maybe when you eat an apple, that your blood sugar is pretty, you know, tame, but when you eat strawberries, your blood sugar goes really high. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you learn by keeping a food diary and keeping track of your blood sugars, what types of foods kind of make your blood sugar more reactive than others. But still, if you want to eat those strawberries, if you want to have a piece of cake at your baby shower, you just have to know how many carbs are in that so that you can cover that with the insulin. Um, So just a totally different mindset. And there's a lot of misinformation out there from the past. So I'm glad we're talking about it today. With my first pregnancy, I did do kind of the lower carb, like low carb, high protein, high fat. It did make it easier for me to manage my blood sugars. Um, But with the second one, you know, I already had one healthy baby. I was like, oh, I could do it again. It was harder. And I felt like I craved that like high carb food more. So it was harder to do the low carb um, options. Oh, certainly in pregnancy in general. I mean, just indulging your every carb fantasy is not going to be healthy, whether you have diabetes or not. And certainly it makes sense, especially as you mentioned, pairing Uh, a carbohydrate with a fat or protein can be a way to help your body metabolize that food slower and let your body adjust easier. Um, Certainly there might be some lower carb options that are easier for your body to handle than higher carb options. Um, But what I get nervous about as a nurse is when people say, I'm going to cut 
calories. Right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to skip breakfast. I'm, you know, only going to have, you know, one tiny piece of sandwich or a salad for right. lunch. And they're not getting enough calories because right. that's what makes it quote easier to control their sugars. We want to give you the tools that you need, whether that be sometimes medication, sometimes insulin, um, in the case of gestational diabetes, certainly in the case of type one diabetes, we want to give you the tools that you need to keep your blood sugar in good control and within a healthy range, but still get the calories that you need to grow your baby and be healthy. So that's important. So when you were planning on becoming pregnant, um, what advice did your doctors give you about how to have a healthy pregnancy with type one diabetes? They said that I needed to get my A1C, I believe it was like under 7.5 and it was not at that at the time, but when I, and I was going to have to get way more like appointments, like typically you see your diabetes doctor every three months. I think prior to having a baby, I was seeing them monthly. So we can make sure that I was really fine tuning things. (laughs) And before we started taping, you had mentioned some kind of bad advice that some of your friends had gotten about. Um, diabetes and pregnancy. And I'd like to bust some myths on the Mm, show today. Can you talk a little bit about some bad advice that's out there? Well, it's really sad, but like some of the doctors, maybe they're not endocrinologists. Um, They've told some of my friends that if you have a high A1C and your pregnancy wasn't planned, that it might be the best choice to have an abortion. And I do have a lot of, have some friends who had unplanned pregnancies. However, they chose not to have the abortion, um, many of them. And you know, they were able to have healthy babies. So even if you start out with a higher A1C than the doctor would recommend, you can still have a healthy pregnancy. And that's something that we see a lot with um, pregnant people in general in healthcare is that, you know, ideally everybody would come for a preconception consultation with their midwife or their (laughs) OB or their endocrinologist and talk about like what types of lifestyle factors can we adjust to give you the healthiest fertility and the healthiest start to your pregnancy. But sometimes people get pregnant when they are smoking cigarettes or they're Mm -hmm. on medications that might not be healthy for pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe ideally that wouldn't be the case, but now they are. So What's great about pregnancy is it's very motivating for the vast majority of people to get healthy. And so even if you came into pregnancy, smoking cigarettes, for example, or with a high A1C, that doesn't mean that all hope is lost. There are, you know, people that can help you um, make some healthy lifestyle changes to get that A1C down or to smoking cigarettes or to get, you know, in shape or whatever, whatever. So I I think that the message really should be hope, right? That there are there are a lot of people out there who might not be as up to date on diabetes information as diabetes specialists, especially Mm -hmm. since, as we've discussed in the last 40 years, there have been tremendous changes in the way we care for diabetes. So, um, you know, make sure that if you are someone with diabetes who is pregnant or planning on getting pregnant, that you're meeting with somebody that really feels that um, diabetes is something that they're an expert in. Mm -hmm. That's important. You want to get the best advice. Um, and I wanted to add that before I had my baby, I had never had A1Cs as in range as I was able to when I had my baby. Like you brought up how motivating it is. It was mm. definitely motivating to me. I have many um, friends through the support groups that I'm in that feel like they couldn't do it, you know, but many of them felt like that. And then were able to manage healthy pregnancies because of how motivating it is to have a baby inside you. Yeah. 
So when you were pregnant, you said that you had more appointments with your endocrinologist, mm-hmm. you probably had more appointments with your midwife or well, probably an OB because you had diabetes. Um, and then I know there's people who were worried about babies getting too big, yes. quote unquote. So mm-hmm. did you have a lot of ultrasounds at the end of your pregnancy? Did you get pressure to have a planned C-section because of the predicted size of your baby? Like so many people that I've heard of. Yes, I was pressured to have a planned C-section and they told me that I should have the C-section at 38 weeks. And first I pushed them up to 39 weeks. And then I told them that I'd be planning my C-section for the day that the baby was born. (laughs) Or like, you know, the the due date. And so um, luckily for both of them, my water broke and I did not need to um, actually plan. Um, My water broke at 39 weeks for my first and at 37 weeks for my second. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't taken the like push classes that I know Melissa runs because I kind of assumed that I was going to be having a C-section, even though I really wanted that natural birth. So when it started to get close to the pregnancies, both times I like started to get nervous. I was like, um, there's some stuff I think I'm supposed to know (laughs) that I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. That is funny. And, you know, there are, there's a lot of research around diabetes and pregnancy, and there are recommendations based on large studies that, you know, have suggested uh, plans of care that include things like maybe a planned cesarean sometime between 37 and 39 weeks. And the, the, the most important thing to remember is that you are an individual that should be given the opportunity to hear about that research because it's important and it has some good, important evidence and safety recommendations behind it. You should be given the opportunity to hear about that research, to hear about those uh, recommendations from ACOG and the American Diabetes Association, Mm -hmm. and then to have a discussion with your provider about your individual risk factors, how your pregnancy has been going, how your baby has been developing and how your blood sugars have been so that you can make an individualized decision that works best for you. And I think that's what's often lost when people Mm -hmm. get a quote, high risk um, pregnancy diagnosis, right? right? Yes. Having diabetes in pregnancy puts you at higher risk for complications. But I, 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 I wish people said it that way that puts you at higher risk for developing complications, right. but doesn't make you high risk, you know, like I feel like danger, danger. Yeah. <laughs> because yes, you are at a higher risk, for example, of having a baby that is, you know, uh, unusually large, larger than a baby at, you know, any, but also age. isn't the risk, it's less about the actual size and it's more the relationship between the head and the torso. Yes, the head and the right. shoulders, exactly. But that's no. also when it's, no, Danielle, that's not what you were No, heard? I was saying that's so oh. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, right. yeah so that's what I had understood. So so the what, what ACOG actually says is that um, a planned cesarean without a trial of labor, which we've discussed those terms, but mm. a planned cesarean without labor first should be counseled when the estimated fetal weight of a baby uh, is more than 5,000 grams if the mother does not have gestational diabetes or diabetes and mm-hmm. 4,500 grams, if the mother does. So that's still a pretty big baby. <laughs> um, and I there are that- people who can push out those babies. And I think the other piece of it to me and Melissa, I haven't studied this topic in a while. So tell me what, you know, but I remember feeling like, well, in situations where people have actually had their diabetes controlled right. the whole pregnancy, 
then there shouldn't, I think, be a risk of having a baby whose head is not in proportion to the torso and therefore right. that could cause complications. Absolutely. But yeah, I remember when I was a doula and I was, t- I, I was the doula for two people who were due a couple weeks apart and they were both having one unit of insulin per day. Mm-hmm. And one of them was being counseled to plan the C-section and the other one was being counseled to have a vaginal birth two different doctors at two different right, hospitals. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And otherwise they were extremely similar cases. There was no other right. reason why one would be. And I was like, this is fascinating. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it's true. Sense. And I think that's another good kind of take home message that people need to understand is that your provider is giving you their recommendation based likely on their, uh, you know, the, the research and the standard of care, but also their experience and education and expertise. And the person next door might interpret all of that completely differently. And some people feel not at all strongly that patients should be part of the decision-making. And some providers do feel like individualized care, you know, is important. And so, um, you know, I, I think that people should, should, should take diabetes seriously, especially, you know, type one diabetes or, um, uh, but also you are an individual, you might have higher risks of developing complications, but that doesn't mean you are inherently high risk and your baby is inherently high risk and everything is inherently dangerous and catastrophe is going to happen right. if we don't, you know, do X, yeah. Y, and Z. Yeah. I feel like it can really do a number on your kind of emotional state during pregnancy. So that was actually my next question is, can you speak a little bit about emotionally what you were going through during your pregnancy with um, Eli, because, yeah. you know, we're, we're, when you're pregnant, you're nervous about everything, right? Oh Medications, God, yeah. the lotion you put on your skin, environmental toxins. I remember sitting in traffic, you know, t- smelling that like the diesel truck in front of me, you know, and then I was like, oh my God, I'm like rolling yeah. out the windows and I'm panicked that like now I've exposed my baby to toxins. Yeah. So I feel like you have that worry on top of literally sometimes like minute, hour by hour, you know, concerns about your blood sugar. And, and even if you are the most meticulous Mm -hmm. person in the world with your carb counting and your insulin and managing everything as tightly as possible, diabetes and pregnancy and the placenta and the hormones and your metabolism and thyroid issues can really just make everything very challenging. It's not, it's not, um, your fault, quote unquote, if you're having, if you're struggling to keep your blood sugars in a tight range. So how is that? What does that feel like as the pregnant person going through that? Oh man, it is so much work. Um, during the first trimester, you're having lows that are just feel like they're coming out of nowhere. Um, and then during the second and third trimester, you're starting to build up that insulin resistance, which is going to cause higher blood sugars. And so something that you used to be able to give a certain amount of insulin for now needs can potentially need three times as much insulin. Wow. Um, and then when you're about to have the baby, um, your insulin needs can drop substantially. And so it's just like you're on like a tightrope or a roller coaster and you don't really know exactly what is causing, you know, baby could get hungry and it could, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, But the challenge is that as a mother, you know, you feel 100% responsible for the baby that you're growing inside you. And you're going to do the best that you can to make sure that you're able to get them into the earth healthy. 
But when you see the number come up, and even if it's a number like 180 or 160, that for me, I could be like, if I wasn't pregnant, I could be like, oh yeah, that'll come back down on its own. When you see it on the screen and you're pregnant, you think to yourself, how am I going to get this down into a normal person, you know, somebody without diabetes range mm -hmm. immediately? Because mm -hmm. my baby doesn't have diabetes and they should have the blood sugars in my mind, you know, they should have the blood sugars of somebody who doesn't have diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my mind, I was, I was beating myself up every time the blood sugars were out of range. And like with my second pregnancy, I was able to cut myself more slack, you know, and be like, this is where you are right now. This is what your blood sugar is right now. It's going to be okay. Um, and so that did make it easier. However, I was a little older with my second pregnancy. And so just the natural pregnancy stuff made it harder of my body right. just being in more pain. Yes. And chasing around a toddler and, and chasing around not a being toddler. able to oh rest. And <laughs> yes. And both pregnancies, like I had postpartum depression after my first, and that made it really hard. Um, and I believe I may have had postpartum depression after my second, but I was on medication. And so the medication made a big difference in being able to manage those emotions. And so then the birth came. Yes. And how did your birth with Eli go? Your, you said your water so, broke. And yeah. You so were with Eli, weeks pregnant, I think you said. I was 39 weeks 39? pregnant. My water broke a week early and it was like right before I was supposed to go to work. And I did not think I was having a baby. Even though my water broke, I was like, nope, no baby's coming. Baby's supposed to come on April 7th, not April 1st. A lot of people was... do that. <laughs> I totally did that. It totally waited over, like it was 24 hours before I went to the hospital because wow. I was like, I have an appointment tomorrow. I'll just go tomorrow. <laughs> and I did call the doctor multiple times. I told them, you know, my water broke, my mucus plug fell out, but I feel fine. Like I felt so not in labor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so 24 hours later, I went and they were like, oh yeah, you're having a baby today. And I was like, wait, <laughs> no, not today, seven days from now. <laughs> but um, he was supposed to be 10 pounds, six ounces. And they were very right on with the measurement. Um, they were just Which is like pretty unusual off. from yeah. all the and so when I came in, they were like, oh, there goes the 10 pound baby. <laughs> they were all very excited for me. Um, the delivery, you know, it was a C-section delivery. And so. It, but you were in labor for a while. No, I was not in labor with my first one. Oh, with I your first have, one, you weren't in labor. Meaning oh, okay. you didn't have contractions, but you had broken yeah. your water. You know what? The baby yeah. had signaled. You're right. Time for like, me to be born. Yeah. I may have been in labor for three days because all of a sudden I started feeling like terribly uncomfortable. I don't know if that's what you call labor. <laughs> I wasn't uncomfortable before that. I was like, oh, this is what all the pregnant people talk about. <laughs> I think you so. call it that if you're um, maybe British and old. I know it's, it's terribly uncomfortable. I, that's what I think. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so we need a Hugh Grant movie about that. Yeah. Yes. Oh wait, there is one. I forgot. So he's born by cesarean. So he was born by cesarean and oh, I was so happy, you know, to have him immediately skin to skin. Like that was a big deal for me. I was fearful that immediately they were going to like take him away and run tests on him or something like that. And it, 
and I was able to breastfeed like immediately after he was born. However, they came into me and they, they checked his blood sugar and I saw the look on the guy's face mm-hmm. and I just knew that something wasn't, wasn't right. And they ended up taking him to the NICU. And the whole time I was like, wait, where's my baby? Where, where is he? Like, I didn't know how to get to the NICU. My legs didn't work. Mm-hmm. Like I had had a baby and then like he had been removed from me, you know, did they and warn that, you, do you remember, did they warn you that that might happen? You know, I was also on whatever drugs they gave me for the cesarean sure. section. <laughs> so whatever they had told me probably wasn't, um, able to be remembered at that point. At that point, it was just like my motherly instincts were in, I had a baby. I need my baby with me right Mm -hmm. now, you know, and they had taken him away and it had been, it had been like hours until I got to see him. Mm -hmm. And when I went up the next, you know, like I slept in my room and the baby slept in the NICU. And when I went up the next day, they were like, wait, what do you mean you didn't pump? And I was like, nobody told me about pumping. And I felt, I felt some shame regarding how Mm -hmm. I was supposed to be, I'm supposed to be a mother now. Mothers are apparently supposed to know everything that comes with having a baby. (laughs) And so I just, um, you know, started pumping and started pumping like every, what do we pump every two hours or something? And I was sending up the milk and it was not enough because they started giving him formula and I know logically that I'm not a failure because I needed formula in the first day Mm. but emotionally Mm. it felt like I was angry at my body Mm. it felt like my body was supposed to do this and it was letting me down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as a nurse I would like to also add that you were not supported in meeting your breastfeeding goals. Mm -hmm. Because when I work postpartum, a patient comes out of surgery, if they're telling me that they want a nurse and that baby's in the NICU and they're out of it, let's say they have preeclampsia, they're on mag or they're doped up. Mm. I'm taking that breast pump, I'm setting it up and I'm holding it to their boobs myself. I'm hand expressing myself. I'm, you know, I've had patients who are like completely out of it. I had a patient once in the ICU. She couldn't lift her head up. She had hemorrhaged 3000 mLs of blood. Mm. And I was like, is it okay if I hand express and massage your boob? And she was like, just do anything. And I am, I'm literally taking a dropper, a one milliliter big and Mm -hmm. sucking up tiny drops of colostrum. And I'm, I will hand deliver this to your baby. I promise. Take her phone, take pictures of the baby, drop that colostrum into that baby's mouth. That's, that's the kind of care that you deserved and that you didn't get. And so I feel like a lot of women are very filled of guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. I should have known. No, you shouldn't have. You just had surgery. You're a new mom. That's our job as the staff to get that pump for you, to show you how to use it, to literally hold it on your body if you need to, you know? So I'm sorry that you felt that way. Yeah. I I want to say two things. One is that clearly even all those, these years, because how old is he now? Six? He's just turning seven tomorrow. Seven? Oh, <laughs> and it's so fresh. Day. Yeah, it's so fresh in your mind that it yeah. gets it so emotional, so right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. birth matters and your experience matters. matters and it hits us really close. But also everybody who's ever taken any of my childbirth classes, I always make everyone repeat after me, I want 
the nurse who loves natural childbirth, even if you don't mm-hmm. plan on having an unmedicated birth, mm-hmm. eat whatever, because what Melissa, you just described, you do that. Of course, we already knew that you're the nurse that loves yeah. natural childbirth, <laughs> um, but guilty, but, but that's the kind of stuff that that kind of nurse will do for people. Right. You know, yeah. it's, it's all the stuff that you don't even, I don't have time in class to explain to you all the cool right. stuff that a nurse who loves that it's not even about the birth. It's that she has had this extra training and she's got a passion and she knows like this stuff is important to people and she will go the extra mile to do it. So, Great. Yes. I didn't even know that I could advocate for that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't know yeah. like what I could ask for. And uh, another question I have for you guys that I know you'll be able to answer <laughs> is um, I didn't think that I could have a midwife or a doula because I have type one diabetes. And I'm just wondering if it is something that people with type one could have. A doula, That's yes. a really good question. Absolutely. You can have a doula for a high-risk pregnancy, a low-risk pregnancy, a community birth, a mm-hmm. big giant hospital birth, you, home birth. You can have a doula for uh, a planned cesarean. Yeah. I've had some people have a doula I've for a planned cesarean. i been a doula for planned cesareans. Yeah. yeah. Doulas mother the mother and however their experience unfolds and is a resource for them to get information, just like Jeanette said, right? Jeanette's mm-hmm. not a nurse or a doctor, but Jeanette was like, hmm, I had two, I had two clients that had the exact right. same diagnosis and had two different opinions. Doulas have that kind of knowledge because they've worked with a lot of clients that have worked with a lot of providers. And so even just right. the knowledge, you don't know what you don't know, right? right? So even just Jeanette saying to you, if you were her client, you know, mm-hmm. I had a parent once with the same diagnosis who was told that she could have a vaginal delivery. Maybe it's something you can right. ask about. That's you know, the valuable. other thing that I was able to do in that case, I remember this distinctly. I also had friends who were labor and delivery nurses at mm. one of the, at both of those hospitals. So I remember the one that was being pr- pressured to have a C-section. I s- called up my friend who was a labor and delivery nurse. And I said, what's the story with this doctor? He's saying this. And she said, well, I'll be diplomatic about it. And I'll say, mm. if I needed to have a C-section or one of my best friends needed a C-section, I'd want him to do it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, mm. she's like, he's very good at them. He's got a lot of experience with them, you know? And it was like, yeah, yeah like oh, it's, so it's not always, even, always says yeah, that. <laughs> it's not even like his experience and expertise and his perspective perspective it was that he loves to do c-sections like that's mm-hmm. his thing and everybody at the hospital knew that he yeah. had like the highest c-section rate of them all and as far as a midwife yes i mean maybe not all midwives feel comfortable taking care of somebody with diabetes but there are many midwives that work in what we call con- con- co-care with mm-hmm. um with an ob and so you know, you, every other appointment, you see the midwife or you see the OB and the midwifery model of care is so much more than just taking your, your fundal height and listening to the baby's heartbeat and doing a vaginal exam. I mean, midwifery model of care looks at the whole person, right? Your physical health, your emotional health, your social health, your family life, all of that stuff. So people with gestational diabetes, type one diabetes, high risk pregnancies, they need all of that love and support too, you know, um, everybody has their role, you know? So I encourage people again, with this diagnosis of high-risk pregnancy, I can't have a midwife because I have a high-risk pregnancy. It, you know, you having a quote high-risk pregnancy might mean that you need to see a maternal fetal medicine specialist, Mm -hmm. right. Might mean that you need extra ultrasounds might mean that the midwife is not going to be the one that manages your diabetes. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. That's not their expertise. They're not going to be the ones 
meeting with you on a monthly basis to talk about how to control your sugars based on your trimester. That's out of their expertise, but they can send you a referral to go and have that specialist be part of your team of people. Right. So I, I, I do, again, 90% of the people that give birth in this country give birth with an OB. And 98% of those people who give birth in this country give birth in a hospital. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, midwifery care is underutilized in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I feel like, especially if you have a high-risk pregnancy, a doula, you know, if you can't get a midwife, or even if you can, having that extra emotional, physical, social, family, family support is so needed for everybody. So yeah, I'm glad you asked parent, that question. Every parent deserves a doula. Absolutely. Yeah, I question. would have loved one or two. <laughs> so so yeah. many, many babies that are born to a parent who has diabetes, whether it be type one diabetes, type two, or gestational needs to spend time in the NICU even if that parent was able to very tightly control their blood sugar, because when the umbilical cord is cut, the baby who was getting a continuous stream of nutrition, right, Mm -hmm. um, now has to get used to eating and waiting and eating and waiting, which is not the same thing as being connected to an umbilical cord. And, And some babies that have a parent that you know the parent had diabetes in whatever form or premature babies or babies with other issues sometimes have trouble with that adjustment and so mm-hmm. being monitored in the nursery sometimes necessitating an iv to help them you know stabilize things and and get used to eating and waiting and eating and waiting sometimes they they need that even if you know that that's going to be part of your baby's care it can still be a traumatic experience to be separated from your baby. Mm-hmm. So when you were finally able to see Eli in the NICU, can you talk a little bit about what his stay was like yeah. for you as a parent that's now recovering from surgery and, and not able to be with him 24 seven? Well, I still remember like when I was walking into the hospital before he got into the NICU, when I was walking in and I knew I was going to have a baby and I saw this guy with his car seat and I thought to myself, that's going to be me in three days, you know, cause I thought no five days because I was having a C-section. Um, and I just what the moment that I knew that he was going in the NICU, um, well, the, actually the moment that, he had to stay at the NICU longer than I could stay at the hospital was just like too much for people to deal with. Right. And how are you supposed to accept that when that was nowhere in the vision that I had in my head, even if he was going to stay, even if he was going to go to NICU, it wasn't in the vision in my head that he would have to stay at the hospital in Boston and I would have to go back to Millbury where I lived at the time, which is near Worcester. So every day, my mother-in-law was driving me an hour into the hospital. I was staying there with him all day and then they were driving me an hour back at night. And I, I, cause I couldn't drive cause right. I had had the C-section. Mm-hmm. And so it was, um, he was there for 10 days and then we decided to move him closer to a hospital closer to us. So we moved him to UMass. And the rules were that he needed like 48 hours without oxygen. And when he moved uh, to the hospital closer to us, he was able to get off the oxygen. And it was only two more days that he was until he was able to come home. But 12 days when you thought you were going to go home with your baby is just, I don't know how I could have prepared myself for that, you know? Right, right. 
Absolutely. Incredibly hard. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's a whole group of people who have babies who were in the NICU who described that scenario and how harsh and how awful it is. And I know there's one hospital in Boston that I've heard of, at least one, might be the only one where they have NICU rooms where the parent stays with the baby. Oh. Mm-hmm. And even most other hospitals that I've ever heard of, they don't usually have more than a couple rooms where parents can sleep separate from the NICU. Whereas it seems like it would be better if every hospital had enough space for at least one parent to sleep there all the time, you know? Yes. It's an awful thing that happened. It would have made breastfeeding a lot easier because I was pumping in the middle of the night instead of breastfeeding. And the baby got nipple confusion. Eli got nipple confusion because, and they had me um, use a shield and yeah, it was um, not the best. (laughs) So... So two things as thinking of, you know, if people are maybe going to have the same experience as you, um, mm-hmm. what Jeanette brought up is do your research about hospitals, especially mm-hmm. if you are someone who has a high risk pregnancy, um, research, you know, if you know, your baby's going to be possibly going to the NICU mm-hmm. research, wherever you are, which hospitals are going to give the most accommodations for the parents to be with the baby. Some hospitals, like Jeanette said, have a room that has a bed that a parent can stay there 24 seven private rooms for every NICU baby. Others don't. Some have very liberal visiting hours. Others have very restrictive visiting hours. And so people think, oh, I have a high risk pregnancy. I need to go to XYZ hospital. Cause that's the right. biggest, best hospital in the state. That's where everybody says I should go. Well, you know, that's a lot of marketing yeah. and you know and donor milk too have, some, some hospitals yes. have plenty of donor milk that they freely freely meaning happily um yeah, sure. give give to babies who are in the NICU and others only have donor milk for the very very sickest babies in the NICU and otherwise or not at all or yeah. right or not at all yeah um and then the other thing is that uh you know if breastfeeding is something that's important to you check to see if the hospital that you're giving birth at has dedicated lactation consultants for the NICU um, and asked to see them ASAP. Again, you don't know what you don't know. And not enough people are told, you know, if you're separated from your baby for whatever reason, a lot of nurses, and I've heard it and I've seen it, will say, oh, it's not a big deal. You need your rest. You can worry about pumping tomorrow. But the reality is if, if somebody's goal is to breastfeed or provide breast milk for their baby and they're very motivated. I understand they're tired, but we would ideally get them pumping within the first two hours of the baby being born. Six would be all okay. If there was like, you know, extenuating circumstances, mom wasn't stable, but, but two would be best again, even if we have to have the partner or the nurse hold that pump to the mother's chest. So, or the birthing person's chest. So, um, I, I feel like too many people don't know what they don't know. So if you're listening, know that that's something that you can, that you can ask for. Right. Yeah. I came up with a question, Melissa, that you might know the answer to. Does delayed cord clamping in the case of a cesarean to a parent with either type one diabetes, type two, or gestational diabetes, does that make a difference in the blood sugars of the baby? I would assume it does for a shorter period of time, or does it not at all? That's a very good question. I do not know. Yeah. Um, because it all depends on the baby's metabolism, but delayed cord clamping has so many benefits for, for cesarean birth babies and vaginal birth babies. So, um, but I don't know specifically if there's been any research on, you know, 
gestational that part diabetes of it. Yeah. Or, or any I wonder type of if, if something like it wouldn't it be lovely if at least it would help the baby transition longer to get some skin to skin time before they have to go to the NICU, right? That skin to skin lovely. brings up blood sugar. That's true. Colostrum, too. colostrum is way more effective and faster at bringing up a drop of colostrum and skin to skin mm-hmm. can bring up blood sugar faster than anything, formula, gel, whatnot. And so I, I feel like a lot of another big myth out there is that if you have type one diabetes, especially that you shouldn't breastfeed or you Mm. can't breastfeed and you're not going to make enough milk. And, um, one of the best things that a parent with diabetes, what in whatever form can do for their newborn is provide at least colostrum for the baby. Um, and, and so many parents are disempowered to do that. Uh, but colostrum, you know, again, even if your long-term goal isn't to, uh, breastfeed, we can breastfeed just for today. Mm-hmm. We can provide colostrum or milk for the baby just for the, the time that they're in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I feel like we really, you know, people need education and they also need support. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about um, after it was all said and done, he came what home. was your breastfeeding relationship with Eli? Like yes. how, how did you feed Eli? And then when you had your son, Leo, a few years later, what was that mm-hmm. experience like? Yeah. So both Jeanette and Melissa helped me on my (laughs) breastfeeding journey because Melissa, you had just had your son like a year earlier, you were still Mm -hmm. breastfeeding and Melissa loves to breastfeed anywhere, you know? So so I learned from Melissa that you could just breastfeed wherever you want. And that was very helpful for me because being able to not have to go into the car or hide somewhere, you know, just makes breastfeeding so much easier. However, I was struggling with postpartum depression with Eli and being able to, you know, you can't tell if they're getting the right amount of milk. So I kind of believe that it may have been in my head that I thought that he wasn't getting enough milk because he was growing. And the stress of thinking that he wasn't getting enough milk was just bringing me closer and closer to the edge. And I was actually working at the time. um, And at about three months into my job, it got to the point where I was presenting in front of clients beautifully. And then I would get into the car and I would be hysterical. Mm. And I was just like, partially thinking to myself, I can't be away from my baby, partially thinking to myself, how am I supposed to manage all this? How am I supposed to be a hundred percent of a mom and a hundred percent of an employee? Um, like I didn't know how to do that. And so I ended up going to my doctor and telling my doctor what was going on. And they told me to take a couple of weeks off of work to kind of get, get back in the swing of things. And at that time, they wanted me to also go on medication. And I now know that it's totally fine to be on antidepressants while you're breastfeeding. However, at the time, even though my doctor was telling me it was fine hmm. because I was depressed Hmm. I was not believing everything they were, they were saying. And I was thinking that I had, that I somehow knew that cause he was such a happy baby. He was so happy <laughs> and I could not imagine putting antidepressants into him, you know? Um, but with my second child, Leo, I was able to stay on the antidepressants, you know, and it, it helped me so much. It helped me to be a calmer mom it helped me to accept any trials and tribulations that we had. And so part of the breastfeeding journey for Leo was I did have Jeanette come to my home. Um, I know that 
because of the pandemic, you're doing the office visits now. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I needed more help than I had the first time around because I felt like I had missed out on something. You know, I felt like I had wanted that breastfeeding experience and that I, I tried my hardest, but I didn't get it. And I would love to, for mothers to feel like they had what they, what they wanted, but you know, for, we don't always get that. So with my second, um, I did get the, the labor, you know, I did get the, 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 the contractions and I didn't so you went into your own labor. Yeah. I went into my own labor. Um, it took 36 hours. Um, but with the second, I, he didn't have to go to the NICU either. And his breastfeeding journey was, was great because I had Jeanette's help, I believe. Um, and because I, I was able to, um, to learn the things that I had never learned the first time around. And I wish I knew what I didn't know, but you know, that's hindsight's that. 2020. I wish yes. I knew what I know now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you so had you a did couple other. Leo then. Yeah. I did breastfeed Leo and I breastfed him for like over two years. Wow. And so the, for the first one, for Eli, I made it to six months. And then for Leo, I made it to over two years. And it's amazing how one body can have both those different experiences. Mm. And so, you know, when I have friends that feel like they're not going to be able to breastfeed because they weren't able to the first time, right. I just remind them, I tell them about my experience and I tell them that, you know, I use what you call lacti cups so that when your, um, when your milk drips out of you, it goes into these cups. And Jeanette told me how to, taught me how to use them even more effectively than I had been using them. And so I was able to get like 600 ounces of milk in the first six weeks. And I was just blown away by that. And that's not everybody's experience, but all my friends who I've, you know, told, you got to get these, you got to get these have uh, <laughs> had benefits with them. There's a lot so of meaning when you were nursing now. the baby on one side, you were collecting milk that oh, was no. on the other. So or? no, I would wear them all day in my sports bra and I would oh. have like three sets and I would take them out and I would pour them into the little things that you um, pump into. And so I would have milk in the fridge, like all lined up, ready to go. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that's I, so cool. I, I, I didn't even know that was a thing. It's amazing. Yeah. So the Hakka is the one that you have on one boot. But, you know, if you're leaking and you're using those little pads, um, the lacti cups can catch what was going to go into the pads. Yeah, there's wow. a bunch of different, there's a bunch of different of those types of catchers that aren't yeah. particularly suctioned. They just sort of Got catch. It. Right. And, and some you can move around a little bit more than others. So, yeah. I yeah. think that you are so brave, Danielle. And, and, I, and I say this to people all the time that, mm. you know, decide to try again. Mm -hmm. for a second or third or fourth or fifth or eighth pregnancy to try again <laughs> to meet their breastfeeding goals. Because mm -hmm. almost never is it something that the parent did that made right. them not succeed, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is often a failure of the system, a failure of not getting enough support, a failure of getting bad advice. So many things, think about your experience with Eli. You know, mm -hmm. even if it was medically necessary, you were separated from him at birth. You, yeah. you know, he had a tumultuous 12 day NICU stay mm -hmm. while you were commuting. You weren't given a pump until a day later. Yeah. Um, didn't have the right information to make the most amount of milk in the time that you were spending pumping. And, mm. and, and then, uh, you know, 
untreated postpartum depression for six months. And, you know, just, you know, all of that, that toll that that takes on you Mm -hmm. um, to doubt yourself. A lot of people second time around would say my body's broken. I'm not strong enough to do this. I'm not smart. Maybe I shouldn't have another baby either. Right. Right. Maybe Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have another baby. Maybe I shouldn't try again. I'm just going to, and, 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 um, so kudos to you because it takes bravery, um, to, to try again Mm -hmm. after, um, an experience that didn't pan out the way that you expected. And I'm glad that your experience was different because clearly your body is very amazing. (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you so much you know part of the reason that I that I do brave things sometimes is I want other people to see that they can do it too you know um and so when I went to have my first pregnancy um I was sharing the story with all my friends that I could that have diabetes so that they would know that they can do it and I like I tell them you know the challenges that I have and also the successes that I have so that they can know that it's not just something it's not special about me you know like you can do it too you know Mm. and then that's why you started that group yes exactly that's why I started the group so that people can get together and share their experiences and get support around diabetes because um a little motto that I like to think of is friends don't let friends do diabetes alone to do diabetes alone do you do you make do you make merch with those initials on it (laughs) no maybe i should (laughs) and that group is called type 1 diabetes um meetup massachusetts type 1 diabetes meetup it's on facebook it's for adults men and women uh, living with type one diabetes. It does. It's not just specific to pregnancy, obviously. So definitely go on Facebook and check that out. And if you'd like to learn more about just diabetes and pregnancy in general, a great resource is the American diabetes association, which is diabetes.org. And what I like about that website is it's very, um, positive about having a pregnancy with diabetes. As we've discussed, there's a lot of misinformation and outdated, uh, thoughts about diabetes and pregnancy out there. Yes, it can make things more challenging and maybe increase some risks, but with the right support and information and help and medication, people with diabetes can have healthy pregnancies with healthy outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So the American Diabetes Association has a whole booklet that's free on their website um, for people that are, have type one diabetes that are planning a pregnancy. So I definitely recommend anybody who has that situation to check it out. Mm-hmm. I think they will because your story is inspirational. It's and- so inspirational. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing your stories with us. And I hope everybody will check out the resources. And if they have any questions, they can check out your Facebook group too. Mm-hmm. So awesome. All righty. So we hope everybody's enjoyed today's show and we hope you'll tune in again. Remember. Babies in Common is a community for you. After all, we all have babies, babies in, in common. common. <laughs> I hope everybody is saying that in unison with us if they listen to the end of the, the show by now. I hope right? so. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Have Bye. a great night. <laughs>